morning. Such beautiful music. It's a delight and a privilege to join you here today at Advent Hope. See a lot of faces of friends. It's always good to be among friends. I want to say thank you in a special way to Luke, who is leading your ministry at this point in time, and to this whole team, to Victoria. Thank you for the kind invitation and introduction. And just let you know that Advent Hope is a very important ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. Uh, we've never, I think, we've had good relationships for a long time and never better than now. We're just so grateful for that. We're so grateful for what you do, for what you add to our community, for your work on behalf of Jesus' kingdom in the world of Loma Linda University. So thank you so much and welcome. Let me make sure now that I have this correct, because I don't usually, all right, there we go, don't usually use PowerPoint, so you'll forgive me if I stumble a bit here. So I want to start out with your kind forgiveness and permission, talking about what's happening right now. I think you probably know some about it, but we've just started a series about nine days long, I believe. It's from one Friday night to the next Sabbath evening, and a meeting every single day called Unbelievable. You might have been there with us night. It was a, a wonderful beginning of our multifaceted and intergenerational community. Our speaker last night was Ty Gibson. Today it's David Asherick across all four services. And then this evening again it'll be Ty. And then we move on through the week adding Jeffrey Rosario along the way. So you probably are well acquainted with their names and their ministry and the work that they're doing. We would love to have you join us. If you can't come in person, join us online, but hopefully you can come. One of the things I love about having the opportunity to talk with you here today is the opportunity to talk about something that's very much on my heart. If I have the privilege of being around you for any length of time, and if our conversation turns to the world of Scripture, which I love talking about, it won't take long for you to realize that I have a deep love for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a powerful missive. It's a letter that I think if we read and understand and live has life-changing, world-changing implications. So I'm involved in a project right now that I wanted to tell you something about that I'm really eagerly looking forward to. I'm working with our director of music and of worship and musical arts, Adriana Pereira, uh, this is her doctoral project, and it's also something I've had in my heart for quite some time. So I've been working for some time now in committing the letter of Ephesians to memory, and she is working right now on writing a cantata. So toward the end of this year, on a Sabbath afternoon, we're going to have a very special event at the church, and, uh, and I hope you will plan to join us and be a part of that. But what it has caused me to do has been to delve more deeply into this letter to the Ephesians. There is nothing like memorizing Scripture to cause it to take root and get soil and germinate in your own soul. And uh, the section I'm on right now is the early part of Ephesians chapter 4, about the first half of Ephesians 4. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. But before doing that, I want to say something about the theme of the letter itself. Different people 
state the theme a bit differently. Stephen Miller says God, the theme is that God has a plan to return unity and peace to his creation, and the church will play a leading role in that plan. Uh, I really appreciate that particular statement of the message of Ephesians. Because the truth is, if I were invited, I hope not, but if I were invited to pastor a church that was fractured, where people were fighting, I'm so thankful that's not the case here. But if, if that were the case, I think I would do nothing for the whole first year except preach and teach Ephesians. Because that's what it is about. Exactly what Miller says. God's ultimate plan is to bring unity to his creation. And the church has a specific role to play in that plan. Uh, George Knight, James Edwards, James Edwards, Building the Body of Christ. The Holman Bible Handbook, Unity. Ephesians focuses on the unity between Christ, the head of the church, and the church as the body of Christ, as well as the unity between Jew and Gentile in God's greatest masterpiece, the church. So let's talk just a little bit about the structure of Ephesians and why they would say this. Now, the way Ephesians is structured is somewhat a habit. I don't know if I would say it's in every letter, but it's somewhat habitual of Paul. But in Ephesians, it is especially evident. It is neatly divided into two sections. And I don't know if Paul had this in mind, but they're almost exactly the same length. Ephesians 1 to 3 and Ephesians 4 to 6. These two sections have very different emphases that are deeply connected. And once we get an understanding of how it's structured and how these are connected, the entire letter comes alive and has a chance to live within us exactly what Paul was hoping would happen in the church in Ephesus. Now, we've had the wonderful privilege, and it has been truly a privilege, of being in the excavations of the ancient city of Ephesus on a couple of different occasions. It's one of the best excavated cities of the ancient world. It is a marvel to see. So to stand in the Agora, the marketplace where ancient Ephesus would have done its merchandising and its business, or in the library that is part of the central road through Ephesus, or especially to walk out maybe a quarter of a mile or so out of the city center and come to the amphitheater, the theater of Ephesus, where you have the people chanting for two hours, great as Diana, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, and Paul's companions are saying, don't go in there. And he wanted to, and they held him back and said, you can't go in there. It sounds suspiciously reminiscent of some things that we observe, because the book of Acts tells us they did this for two hours, and then it says, and the greater part of them had no idea why they were there. They just showed up, and they just started chanting. So to stand in those places and to take in what it must have been like is truly a profound experience. Now we know something about the church. The great people of the early church passed through and some lived at Ephesus sooner or later. Part of what we know was that this was a church was, that was in many ways fractured, divided. The biggest part of the divide was Jew and Gentile. That could be not only a deeply contentious divide, but profoundly hostile. There is evidence, for example, in ancient Judaism. 
that if a family had a child, I'm not saying this happened all the time, but there is evidence of this kind of thing happening, just to get a sense of how deep the divide was. That if a family had a child that married a Gentile, they conducted that child's funeral. We're done. We have no child. Now, that kind of hostility, that kind of divide, changes everything. So we know that that was happening in the church of Ephesus, that there were differences and deep divisions. So when Paul sits down and probably dictates the letter, when he dictates this letter, what does he say? How does he speak into a situation like that? So before I look a little bit at the structure, just a brief story. An author that I've appreciated over the years tells a story about a gentleman at a church he pastored that he called Herb. I think he, you know, I don't know what his name actually was, but Herb. He said Herb had been a church member for decades. He was part of this local congregation, and everybody knew Herb, and everybody tolerated Herb because Herb was crotchety. He was upset half the time, mean-spirited at certain times. And one of the most common statements that got made between the members about Herb was kind of a shrug of the shoulders and just, well, that's Herb. Did you hear what he did? Do you hear what he said? That's Herb. Did you know what the guess? That's Herb. I mean, that was the reality that happened. And this author writing about that, pastoring the church, says, what struck me when I became a part of this congregation and began to see this was that there was no expectation of life change. There was no expectation that Herb would grow, would become more like Jesus. It was just, that's Herb. Now, I understand the other members can't make him grow. I, I get that. That's something that he's going to have to decide. But it's a, a, a reality that we can begin to take on and not realize we're taking it on. Just say, there's not all that much expectation that any of us is going to be transformed by the Spirit of God. So when Paul puts quill pen to parchment and scratches out this letter, we call Ephesians. He's writing into a context, though which if they looked at each other across that aisle and just said, well, that's Jews, well, that's Gentiles, nothing would ever have changed. That's not Paul's idea. So the structure helps us understand exactly what he drives at. So Ephesians 1 to 3, first part of this, Ephesians 1 to 3 is largely written in what scholars call the indicative mood of writing. The indicative mood of writing is the mood of writing that indicates or states what is true. It's not asking you to do something necessarily. It's just telling you this is the reality. And in that section, Paul says some amazing things. He tells us we've been forgiven. He tells us we are rich beyond imagination. He says, all the heavenly treasures are yours in Christ. He says, you've been forgiven. He says, you've been destined for his kingdom. All of these things are not things he's calling them to do. He's just saying, this is the reality of the gospel. This is what is true. He writes in the indicative mood of writing. 
Secondly, it's very strongly and even heavily doctrinal. Much of the first part of the letter is two sentences in the original. It's like, did you go to grammar class, Paul? <laughs> I mean, I'm out of breath by the time I'm halfway through. It's very dense. It's very packed. It wasn't until I started working to commit it to memory that I began to realize just how densely packed it is with deep and important doctrine. So that's part of this first part. Identity. He tells us our identity in Christ. The words that are very common in Paul's writing and that are very present in Ephesians are the two words, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, over and over again, in Christ. Our first identity is that we are in Christ, and that's what he wants them to know. Now, that's an important reality because... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just in those words, we know two things. They are in Ephesus and they are in Christ. Those are the two realities of their world. Those are the two realities of our world. We are in Loma Linda, but I hope we're in Christ. And our identity in Christ is more important than our identity in Loma Linda. That's a little hard for a Texan boy to say, but it's true. Identity. And finally, the message he's trying to communicate in a very important way is you are one. Remember what he's talking about here now. People who are profoundly divided. You are one. I can almost picture it when the person, because here's what's stunning to realize, is the people who got this letter, not all of them, because Ephesus was an educated, thriving city, but certainly some and possibly many of them couldn't read. So they only would have heard it read. I can almost picture them sitting in the congregation, kind of doing the side eye, you know, the ones over on that side of the aisle. And then this message comes out. You are one. And they're saying, Paul needs to visit here again. <laughs> he hasn't been here in a while, has he? Boy, he's got us wrong. He does not have them wrong. He says, you were made one at the cross. At the cross, Christ destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his, fle his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Now that's an amazing statement in the original because there are two different Greek words that could be used for new. One new humanity. New. One word is this is new at this point in time. This is a new clicker. We just bought it. I have no idea, but, you know. So this is new. There have been dozens, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of them before. This one is new. That's not the word Paul uses. The other word is this is new in kind. There's never been anything like it before. This has never been seen. That's the word Paul chooses. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and reconciling both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's what he's writing about. 
you are one. It's as though he says to them, you are one. They say, you haven't been here in a while. Are you in Christ? Yes. Then you are one. That's the bottom line. So that's the first half, chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. But we've got this other part, Ephesians 4 to 6. So what does this part look like? So in Ephesians 4 to 6, it is written primarily in the imperative mood of writing. The mood of writing now changes. Now it's primarily the mood of direction, command. It's telling us what to do. That's not what he does in the first half. In the first half, he tells us who we are. Now in the second half, he is saying, because of who you are, because you're in Christ, because Christ has made you one, this then is how you are to live. Let me ask you, you're at Loma Linda University, you come here to get a degree and, you know, <clears throat> a degree, <laughs> but you get to looking at somebody across the classroom and you think, you're Jesus. <laughs> I want a degree, but that's a really nice person over there. Could we meet? What if you go out, have dinner with them, and at that first dinner, they start giving you instructions on what they want you to do? You know, I'd like my meal at this time, and I'd like you to pay this payment. Please make sure my car is full of gas. You're like, what? What are you talking about? We know at a human level that would never work. But do you know what? We have done that far too often as a church. Giving people instructions that they are not ready to receive because they don't have a profound sense of their identity in Christ. And it goes sideways almost every time. And in the times when it doesn't go sideways, it creates legalists. That's the reality. We can only start talking about the imperative when we are utterly clear on the indicative. So the second part, written in the imperative. Focus is not on doctrine, but on duty. Okay, here we have. This is what the doctrines of Paul's letter are, of the Christian church are. Now, once we have those clear, now let's talk about how we live those out. Then, not identity, but instruction. And then, not you are one, but now learn to live as one. Good friend of mine, passed away just recently, taught here for years, Ivan Blazin, professor of New Testament. A profound scholar, wonderful human being. Ivan told me one time, he said, you know, I was preaching a series on Ephesians. This has been two and a half decades ago, trying to sort through some of the meanings then that weren't nearly as clear to me then as they are today. And he said, you know what your series title should be? Here it is. Becoming what you are. And I've concluded he's exact, he was exactly right. Because what Paul is saying is, this is who you are, now become who you are. That's the second part of the letter. So it's amazing how much that is like marriage. So I've had the magnificent, and it has been magnificent privilege, of officiating at, at weddings on a few occasions. And I've seen a lot of things at weddings, you know, rides fainting, and, you know, anyway, just I won't get into that. But, but I will say this, 
Here is what I think about at times when I'm standing there about to read the vows. You know, first of all, many these days do their own vows to each other. Just be sure you write those before. I've seen people wing it, and it didn't end well. (laughs) They do their vows, and have it written down, by the way. Don't trust your memory. But there comes that point when I have the privilege of saying, do you take, and then there come the vows. I don't say this, but I'll tell you what I often think. I often think, when you say those two words, I do, that ought to make you weak at the knees because of the promise you are making. There's no way you can fulfill that in your own strength. The power of love, the power, in my view, of Holy Spirit-inspired love in all that that means will be what will take you through. Okay? So then we come to the end, inasmuch as, and inasmuch as, given the pleasure of vows to one another, it's my privilege as a minister of the gospel and by the authority of the law of the state of California to pronounce you husband and wife. What God has joined together, let no one put apart. At that moment in time, we are right at the end of Ephesians 3. You are one. What I've thought I need to say is just before they march down the aisle, everybody's whistling and clapping and excited and all that is say, okay, now, go spend the rest of your lives learning how to live as one. You are one, but now you're going to have, until the day you breathe your last breath, a school in which you learn how to live what you already are. That's Paul's letter to Ephesians. So he starts out telling us, you are one. You belong to Christ. You have been made one. Now, the turning point. So in the passage I want to look at today, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, it's really the turning point in the letter between these two pieces. Now, it would have been a scroll, but just imagine for a minute it was a book. We've come to the central central part of the book, about half, equal halves. There it falls open. What's at the turning point? How will Paul make this transition from you are one to now learn how to live as one? Your identity is in Christ. Now, the instructions are these for how you are to live. How will he make that transition? So, I want to read you a couple things. First, from James Montgomery Boyce, the late James Montgomery Boyce, preacher and scholar. With the possible exception of Romans, no New Testament letter contains a stronger or more exhilarating presentation of theology. That's why I love it. Chapters 1 to 3 have spoken of predestination and election, adoption and redemption, the work of the Holy Spirit, rebirth, the work of God, and joining people from all nations and all walks of life together in the one holy body of Christ, the church. This is so marvelous a section that Paul ends chapter 3 with a doxology. We want to say with Paul, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we do say this passionately and intently if we have understood the teaching in these chapters. Okay? Yet the letter does not stop. Paul immediately goes on to say, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He is telling us that doctrinal input must be matched by an equal practical output of that doctrine in our lives. Don't miss that line. 
He is telling us that doctrinal input, that's the first three chapters, must now be matched by an equal practical output of that doctrine in our lives. So this is the passage. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's how he makes his transition. This is a packed, small paragraph. So let's talk about why it's so important. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy. Worthy. That's an important word. It's an important word in the original. Live a life worthy. So worthy, axios in the Greek, is a word out of the marketplace. The market, you can almost, if you've been there, picture in that agora, in that marketplace, the merchants doing their business and using this word. So uh, Mount says in classical Greek, axios had to do with tipping or balancing the scales. When two entities are compared and found of equal weight, they are fitting or worthy. So this is the image that you must have in mind, that of an ancient scale. Okay, so you go into the marketplace and you say, I want to buy wheat or I want to buy barley or whatever it is. How much do you want? I want 10 pounds. Okay, so the merchant takes a 10, pardon me, a 10 pound weight, puts it in one side of the scale. What does the scale do? It goes just like this. And then he starts, starts shoveling out into the other side of the scale, the grain that you have bought, until they balance When they balance, they are worthy. Worthy. As a prisoner for the Lord then, now just think about what Paul is saying there. He's saying, I have paid with everything in my life for this privilege of living the life of Jesus. I'm not just saying this as a preacher standing in front of a beautiful congregation in a wonderful setting. I'm saying this chained. For my witness to Christ, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you. This isn't a bland suggestion. I urge you to live a life, what is it? Worthy. Balance the scale. So now by the end of the first half, the scales are just like this. This side of the scale is profoundly heavy with powerful doctrine, with the realities of who we are in Christ. And Paul is saying, in your response, in how you live, I want you to balance the scales. Have mercy. Just think about that. That in itself ought to make us weak at the knees. It's that couple standing at that wedding altar. This is beautiful. Romance is in the air. She looks beautiful. You look handsome. Your families are all happy. At least that's what they're showing. You're happy, we hope. Everything is good. Everything's coming up roses. All this is great. But you know what? It's not going to matter all that much if this is a short journey. 
I read something. I've been trying to figure out where I read this. read it years ago. I wish I could find it again. Maybe somebody here will find it and share it with me. It really sobered me up. It said, there is some evidence to, to, to come to the conclusion that a marriage is inversely related to how expensive the wedding was. Just let that settle in. I'm sorry I said that, brides, because now your parents are going to say, well, we're going to spend 100 bucks on it so you can live for, you'll be married forever. But the point is to say, you can't count on that. It has to be your life that follows. Like Maury Vinden used to ask, what's more important, getting married or staying married? Well, you can't stay married if you never got married. But once you got married, I suspect staying married is rather important. So that's what's being presented here. Here's the scales. So he's saying, make your lives worthy of the calling you have received. Now again, Montgomery Boyce, this important idea, and that's the idea I read a moment ago, that doctrinal input must be matched by an equal practical output of that doctrine in our lives. This important idea is also contained in the word worthy, which Paul uses in verse 1. Worthy means to have worth or value, but it is more than that. It means to have a worth equal to one's position. A worthy opponent is one whose gifts equal one's own. A workman worthy of his hire is one whose service merits the wages he receives. In his commentary on Ephesians, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this as a scale, drawing this from the language we just talked about, in which the weight on one side always equals the weight on the other, in this case, the weight of practice equaling the weight of doctrine. This is Lloyd-Jones. By the way, he was a powerful preacher in London decades ago, physician by training, preacher by, by work. The apostle is beseeching them and exhorting them always to give equal weight in their lives to doctrine and practice. They must not put all the weight on doctrine and none on practice, nor all the weight on practice and just a little, if any, at all on doctrine. To do so produces imbalance and lopsidedness. The Ephesians must take great pains to see that the scales are perfectly balanced. We in Loma Linda need to listen to that. Deeply listen to that. I'll tell you why I say that. I have never lived in my life in a place, and we've lived many years in Loma Linda, in a place that has so much good in terms of Christian teaching, understanding, discussion, Bible study. This community is rich in that. There is peril in that. Because if that is not matched by what comes in the second half of Ephesians, we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble. We become, as William Lovelace used to say, we become tadpoles. Huge heads and very little body. Nothing behind it. So what Paul is arguing here in an equivalent measure, and that's what makes me think Paul was probably very thoughtful even in the amount of space he gave to each in saying, you've got to be worthy. Not worthy in the sense of I deserve this, I earn this. Not that kind of worthy. But worthy in the sense that we've balanced the scales in our lives. Now, Ellen White, think about what she says here. 
There are many in the Christian world who claim that all that is necessary to salvation is to have faith. Works are nothing. Faith is the only essential. But God's word tells us that faith without works is what? Dead, being alone. Faith and works go hand in hand. Now, some people misunderstand that as though both cause our salvation. She quickly clarifies that. Works will how often save us? Never. Works will never save us. It is the merit of Christ that will avail in our behalf. Through faith in him, Christ will make all our imperfect efforts acceptable to God. Just pay close attention to this last sentence. The faith we are required to have is not a do-nothing faith. Saving faith is that which works by love and purifies the soul. Using some different terminology, she is saying the same thing that James Montgomery Boyce said, that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and that another guy named Paul said, saying the very same thing. You know, some talk about a, a, a contention between Paul and James in the New Testament. One of the best-known people who did that was a guy you may have heard of named Martin Luther. Martin Luther had no use for James. Now, when he's reading over here in Romans about uh, we are saved by faith, Luther apparently, so exercised by his history of trying to work his way to faith, apparently wrote in the margin, alone, saved by faith alone. So he comes over here to James and he reads about works and all this. This shouldn't even be in the Bible, he said. I understand. We're all children of our day and we're all children of our context. And Luther's context was that of earning God's grace. So he understandably had an allergic reaction to any idea that there might be some effort involved. But he was wrong in terms of saying, that shouldn't even be in the Bible. I don't know if you would agree. I'll tell you how I think about Paul and James. I think actually maybe it's pretty simple. Maybe what Paul is saying is, we are saved by faith alone. And that James says, bingo. And let me tell you what kind of faith that is. It's not here. It's in your actions, your deeds, your words, in your whole life. It shows up. You ever heard of a man named Blondin? B-L-O-N-D-I-N-E, I think it is. I used to, my parents, when I was a kid, uh, had these American Heritage books that had all these pictures and stories. I used to look at Blondin's story in one of those big American Heritage books. Frenchman came to this country back in 19, I forget, one, 01 or 02 or somewhere along in there, stretched a tightrope across the chasm beneath Niagara Falls, said, I'm going to walk across this on a tightrope. Remember his story? If you go back and read, it was a spectacle like no other. Not only did people show up by the tens of thousands, statesmen came, senators came. There's some belief even that the president came. This was unbelievable. They came to watch this crazy little Frenchman kill himself. And so here he goes out. There's a big valley in this thing because they can't stretch it that tight. He gets his tightrope, you know, and he goes out and he's doing his thing. Everybody's on and on. And he not only did it, but he started over a period of several days doing it over and over again until, uh, until they were just like marvel. He took a chair out there, tried to sit on it, lost the chair, managed to catch the rope, took something out, fixed breakfast. I mean, he did all kinds of tricks. And then he apparently brought a wheelbarrow. So I'm going to push it across. How many of you believe I can push it across? 
A bunch of people raised their hand, pointed to the guy in the front row and said, get in, I'm going to push you across. He said, I'm not getting in that thing. So you just raised your hand. I know I did, but I'm not getting in that thing. You said you believed. I do. Well, get in. I'm not getting in that thing. That's Paul and James. Paul is saying yes, and James says, okay, yes, get in. I don't see the same conflict that some might see there because I think it's what's happening in Ephesians. That there is, I want to be careful, I'm going to say no place for, but that's too, too strong. We have to encourage the herbs among us, even if my name is Herb. It's not okay just to shrug my shoulders and say, well, that's Herb. The gospel doesn't allow us to do that. So what happens if we overbalance in either direction, toward doctrine, toward practice? What happens if we do that? Again, boys, doctrine without practice leads to bitter orthodoxy. Just doctrine. It gives correctness of thought without the practical vitality of the life of Christ. Practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. It gives intensity of feeling, but it is a feeling apt to go off in any and often a wrong direction. What we need is both, as Paul's letters and the whole of Scripture teach us. We can never attach too much importance to doctrine, for it's out of doc the doctrines of God, man, salvation, that the direction and impetus for living the life of the Christian life spring. At the same time, we can never attach too much importance to practice, for it is the result of doctrine and the proof of its divine nature. So we can end up in bitter orthodoxy. We've all seen them in our lives. And I, I, I cringe to think of how many times I've seen it in the mirror. People who believe the right stuff, they're just mean. Just mean, just not good, good to others, caring to others. I mean, have you seen it on occasion? I saw a, here in Loma Linda, I saw two bumper stickers on a car in front of me. Was it the, well, I'll be careful here. I just saw two bumpers. It's been a few years ago, so I know it wasn't any of you. Two bumper stickers. One bumper sticker said, I heart Jesus, on one side. The other bumper sticker said, zero to fill in the blank in 1.2 seconds. And I just stayed away from that car. The blank was not filled in by a good word. In other words, I can turn on you and be really damaging to you just like that. And I thought, hey, is this somebody just trying to mock faith? Is that what this is? Surely this can't be somebody who actually, you know? There has to be growth. There has to be change. Now, I want to thoughtfully ponder Paul's transition words. So again, think about what it is that he says here. He has just finished with that doxology at the end of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's his doxology. What does he do next? He immediately says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
He immediately turns and says, now, let me talk with you about balancing those scales. Okay? What interests me is what comes next. You can think of all kinds of ways that Paul could go in terms of saying this is what's the most important. I think of my own world, your world, maybe we could say, I urge you to live life worthy of the calling you have received. So become vegan. At least vegetarian. Or, I mean, we could fill in all kinds. Be sure you dress right. Fill in all kinds of things. And it's not that they're unimportant. Because in their sphere, they have importance. But I want you to notice where he begins. He's talking to a church that would likely be reflective of what we have in culture today. Profound divisions and deep polarization. I urge you to live life worthy of the calling you have received. Next thing he says is, be completely humble and gentle. First thing he says, be completely humble and gentle. Do you know that humility was not a positive virtue in the world of Paul? It was viewed as weakness. We tend to celebrate it today to honor somebody for being humble. That was not Paul's world. In Paul's world, it was weakness, and yet that's where he begins. I, I love the quote. I forget from whom it came. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what it is. So if we're going to live that unity, if we're going to be, <clears throat> as a church, a part of that plan of God in the world... First virtue Paul names is humility. Be completely humble and gentle. That, I pray that every day of my life. And then somebody cuts me off on the freeway. And then my wife is laid. And then I get frustrated at myself. For, and suddenly I'm like, oh, Lord, please. I just need you to continue to work in me. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I mean, just think, if, if we were to live out these virtues from a basis of Christ in us, the hope of glory... Just linger on what a difference that would make in every relationship we have. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then he says, make every effort. There is nothing about sitting back and relaxing here. Make every effort. And then it's really important to notice that he says, to keep, not to create. Christ already did that at the cross. Christ created our oneness at the cross. If you are in Christ, you are one with that person who sits next to you. Furthermore, you are one with that neighbor that you, yeah. You know, G.K. Chesterton said, Bible says, love, love your friends and love your neighbors. Usually, be, Love your enemies and love your neighbors. Usually because they're the same people. So there is truth to that. Keep the unity. Christ created it, now you keep it. Make every effort to keep it. 
the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I love this statement by Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard says, grace is not against effort, it's against earning. If we have the belief that experiencing the salvation of Jesus in our life by his matchless grace means that from there on, we're on cruise control. We have not read Ephesians and Romans and a few other places in Scripture. So, this is a recent dedication. Family I love, Johnny and Edna Barrett. This is Lucy, her older sister, pardon me, her older sister, Ella. I had the privilege of dedicating two or three years before. I love dedicating babies, love dedicating children. And if you want to share that with my kids, that's perfectly fine. So, um, <clears throat> so you hold this precious little one in your arms. Think, what a miracle of life. Just to imagine that God gave us as human beings the privilege of being co-creators in life. It's just stunning. So you hold that precious little one and you think, what is ahead for this little one? What are the ups and the downs, the twists and the turns, the joys and the sorrows? What is ahead? And that's why we bring these little ones in dedication. We're saying, Jesus, whatever is ahead for them, please, might your hand rest on them. Your spirit guide them. Your presence protect them. That's what we're doing. Now there's another side to it. I tell parents, this isn't just a dedication of little Lucy or whoever it might be. This is a dedication of the two of you as well. Because this little one, for us it was Austin and then it was Miranda. For you it may be Jim or Harry or Sally or whoever it was. For them it was first uh, Ella and then Lucy. This little one, I have often said, is the most amazing love, the most profound frustration, the greatest joy, the deepest sorrow, the greatest energy, the most profound weariness, all in one little package. It's all there. It will be this, and it will be this. So that when Austin woke up with croup, crying and coughing, you know, at 2 a.m., sick when he was probably four. <clears throat> and I'm trying to pretend like I'm asleep, hoping that a needle will go, you know. <laughs> we ultimately get up and go in and do anything we have to do. It means sleepless nights. In the case of both of our kids, it means hospitalization. It meant bills. It meant all kinds of stuff like that. Do you know what? We didn't do one bit of that to earn the right to call ourselves parents. Something else had made us parents, the birth of our children, in which profound love transformed our lives. We got up and did it. Why? Because that's who we are. We're the parents. We're the adults. Whether I want to get up or not, I'm going to get up. Whether I want to go spend <clears throat> hours at the e emergency room, I I'm going to go do it. Because I'm a parent, not in order to earn the right to be a parent. It's very much the same when it comes to the realities of Ephesians and all that means. So, the entrance to the kingdom of God by the boundless grace of Jesus is completely free, but the trip can be exhausting. Why? Because the journey to heaven is not made 
in an easy chair. If you read Paul, if you read Ephesians, we are one in Christ. We are forgiven by Christ. We are saved by Christ. We have all the riches of heaven in Christ because we are His. What's His is ours. That's the gospel. And now we get to go out and spend the rest of our lives learning to live as who we are. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Gracious God, our hearts are lifted heavenward at the grace that you extend. And Lord, our hearts honestly tremble at the call you make. Please empower us through your spirit to live out the realities of who you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.